Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 7 this morning as we continue to walk through the book of Hebrews together. Uh, If you've not been with us, if you're a guest this morning, uh, the book of Hebrews is written by, uh, we don't know the name of the author, we know it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and it is God's Word. A writer is writing to a group of Hebrew believers and helping them to understand the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Many of them were being tempted to uh, move away from their new faith in Christ, to go back to Judaism. Many were being persecuted for their faith. And so uh, the writer here is communicating their need to hold fast and to stand firm in their faith. And one of the ways he's done that is through helping them to understand that Jesus is our great high priest. And so last Lord's Day, we looked at this in Hebrews 7 about the comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus. I realize that's a name that may be unfamiliar to many of you. Melchizedek is a a priest that appears just briefly in Genesis, but the point of that in Hebrews is to help us to see uh, the greatness of Christ and how Melchizedek was a a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. And so today we're going to continue in this study by seeing uh, how it is that Jesus is our great high priest and what that means for us. What, What benefit to us is that, that Jesus indeed is our great high priest? Now, we're going to do all these things preparing to come to the Lord's table together. Again, uh, the invitation is for those who have publicly professed their faith in Christ. We invite you to join in the Lord's table with us uh, towards the end of our service. If you've yet to publicly profess your faith in Christ, then we would ask that you observe uh, as we come to the table together. But we'll begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 7, beginning there in verse 11. And so I invite you to follow along with me. As we look at God's Word together, and if you would, if you're able to stand uh, out of reverence for the Word of God as I read it for us this morning. This is what the Holy Spirit of God says to us, His church, today. Hebrews 7, beginning there in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. If you would pray with me. Father, I thank you that because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, we can draw near to you today. I'm aware even as I read this text this morning, there may be some here that that this makes no sense to. There's no understanding. We're, We're confused about why. Uh, This writing is about Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood and how any of that has to do with anything today. 
Lord, I pray that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand what this does mean, what, what beauty is here in this passage, how this helps us to understand the access we have to you today through Jesus Christ, that the better hope that we can have through Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for any here this morning who doesn't understand what that hope is, that they might come to understand it. And I, I pray for us who know this better hope, but perhaps this morning need a great reminder that you would give it to us. We ask this now in Jesus' name, who is our better hope. Amen. You may be seated. We have all kinds of ways in our culture of basically communicating that, that we're not perfect people, that we have flaws. And so you probably find yourself saying on a consistent basis, well, uh, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. You might have someone who encourages you when you fall short. Well, you gave it your, your best try, your best effort. We, we have all kinds of ways of communicating basically that we fall short of perfection. I mean, to, to err is human. If we were to go around this room this morning and, and ask, I don't think that any here would say, well, no, Pastor, I'm, I'm a perfect person. <laughs> if you think that, then just ask the person beside you to help you see you're not, because we all fall short in many ways. And this is humanity. We, we often comfort one another in this way, and, and we comfort ourselves in understanding, well, yeah, we, we do fall short. We're, we're not perfect. We, we have our flaws, but the the core problem that we find here is with what the Scripture teaches us about perfection. For example, listen to the words of our Lord Jesus who in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we find when we come to God's Word, there's an entirely different standard than the one that we set for ourselves. Our standard is do your best. Our standard is, is try as hard as you can. But there's this impossible standard that Jesus puts before us where He says we are to be perfect. And we find that when we're not, that creates a separation between us and God. It's what we see in the very opening chapters of the Bible where God creates a sanctuary in the garden for Adam and Eve. And, and there we see perfection. Everything's as it should be. There, there is no sin. But God gives a command. And Adam and Eve disobey that command. And with that sin comes separation. Because we are not perfect, the Scripture says we are separated from God. The prophet Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 59 verse 2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And so the Scripture tells us we, we fall short of God's glory. And this is a problem, especially when we come to what we find in Hebrews where we are commanded to strive to enter into God's rest. The writer of Hebrews here is commanding us to strive to enter into the presence of God, to spend eternity with God. But how can we do that if we're not perfect? How can we do that if we fall short? See, God's standard is God's standard because God is holy. It's who He is and He cannot change it. Therefore, He can't lower the standard. 
So how can we spend eternity in his rest? Well, that is the question that the writer of Hebrews has been answering as he has pointed us towards our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Because it is through Jesus and his perfection that we can enter into the rest of God. So how do we do that? Well, what does that mean for us and why does that give us hope? Well, that's what we're going to look at today as we walk through this passage, beginning with the first point there in your outline. We see that Jesus is God's perfect provision for man's sin. Jesus is God's perfect provision for man's sin. And notice here, the writer reminds us in Hebrews 7.11 that under the Levitical priesthood, perfection was not possible. It fell short. It was incomplete. He writes, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This is what he's saying. He's calling the Hebrew Christians, he's calling us today to look back to the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. Uh, We identify this with that sacrificial system that God put in place when He delivered His people out of Egypt during the Exodus. He gave them regulations for the tabernacle. He gave them regulations for the priesthood. And He told them how they could be made right. How they could offer an offering to atone for their sin. And this was the sacrificial system under the Levitical priesthood. Now, This is not a system we grew up under, and so that's why it's easy for us to kind of skip past this section of Hebrews. But but consider what this was for the original listeners, for the original readers. Consider what it would be like today for you and I to exist under this sacrificial system. Consider what it would be for you to get up tomorrow morning, and as you're going about your business and getting ready, maybe you start off with reading your Bible and you're feeling pretty good and feeling pretty inspired about the day and you've read some passages on uh, forgiveness and mercy and peace and you're thinking, this is just great, Lord. This is so good. I'm at peace and, and I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. And within about five seconds of reading that... Uh, Your kids dump orange juice on the floor and you stub your toe and you realize that your watch is wrong and you're late for work and then the car won't start and then one thing after another happens and maybe you're not at peace anymore. And maybe you're starting to realize you need to ask forgiveness of your spouse, of your kids because you, you lost it and you got angry and upset with them. Or maybe you make it halfway through the day before something like that happens. And so you have this burden on you. Well, under the Levitical priesthood and under this sacrificial system, that this burden to deal with it, you had to make an offering. And so you had to go among your flock and pick out that animal that was without blemish, or you had to go pay and buy that animal from someone else, and then you had to go to the tabernacle or the temple, and you had to make an offering. You had to give this animal to a priest And then they had to slay this animal on your behalf. And then they had to offer it for your sin. And you had to hope that it was enough. And maybe, just maybe, if you left that temple, left that tabernacle, feeling at peace again, feeling like, okay, I made an offering, my sins atoned for, maybe you'd make it about five minutes before you would sin again. And it was time for another offering. And over and over and over again, God's people would need to make offerings for their sin. You can see 
where this system would fall short. You can see where this would be pointing us towards something better, where this was not a perfect system. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is reminding the people of. That's what he reminds them of in Hebrews chapter 10 where he says, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the problem with this system wasn't just that it was ongoing and that it was perpetual and that you had to keep doing it. The problem was the blood of bulls and goats couldn't change a person's heart. The people were still sinners. They were obeying a command. They were seeking to be consecrated and made clean, but they still had sinful hearts. It didn't change their heart. And because they had sinful hearts, it kept coming out in their behavior. And so this is why when you read the story of God's people, you find them during the Exodus receiving God's law and God's teaching and and this great word from God on how they were supposed to live. And then you see them so quickly disobeying it and not believing it. Why? Because it didn't change their hearts. And every time a sacrifice was made, every time there was an offering, well, that didn't deal with the issue of their heart. And that is why God's Word says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, these things were pointing towards a greater sacrifice. They were pointing towards the true Lamb of God. They were pointing towards Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who is able to change the heart. And that is why we can have access to the Father and have a better hope. That's why we can be reconciled to God and made right with God. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Did you see the the beauty of what Paul is communicating there? The Scripture says very clearly that we all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We've covered this. We're not perfect people. We're sinful people. And the wages of sin is death. We deserve God's wrath for our sin. But as Paul writes here, God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was the true atoning sacrifice who paid the debt of our sin. And if we, the Scripture says, will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we can be saved. We can be reconciled to God. Not because we are perfect people, but because Jesus is perfect. Because He's without sin. And because He is the one who's able to give us a new heart. And that brings us to the second point there in your outline. We find that we're able to be reconciled because Jesus doesn't give us a new law. He gives us a new heart. He doesn't give us a new law. He gives us a new heart. The writer here stresses how Jesus does something different. But it's important for us to understand that that difference is not a lowering of God's standard. See, often when we think about standards that we can't meet, 
we, we tend to lower them so that we can meet them. So you might look, for example, uh, at testing among students, and sometimes all of the students do poorly. So what do they do? They lower the standard so that someone can do better. And we may feel that we fall short at times, and we've messed up, and we might be feeling bad about ourselves. So what do we do? We just find somebody who's worse than we are. And then we start to feel better about ourselves. And we could go around the church this morning. You can find someone here that's more messed up than you are. And you can feel better about yourself by looking at that person. Just realize that somebody's looking at you saying, yeah, and they're more messed up than I am. When our standard is one another, well, that's not much of a standard, is it? It really just lowers the standard. But the change that we see here, what the writer's communicating, is not that God in some way has lowered His standard. What He's communicated is that Jesus Christ is the righteous one who meets that standard. And if anything, He calls us to a greater standard. That's why when you read, for example, in the Beatitudes... And Jesus starts mentioning some of the moral law from the Old Testament. He always elevates it. So he'll talk about, for example, something like murder. And he'll say, if you've thought a certain way about a person, well, you've killed them already. He'll talk about things like adultery. He'll say, well, if you've even thought about these things, you've committed adultery. He takes the standard and he raises it. And so what we see is not that Jesus changes the standard. No, Jesus changes our hearts. Again, this is why the people in the Old Testament struggled. They didn't have new hearts. And so as they're on that exodus, as God's taken them out of Egypt, He gives them His law. He gives them His commandments. And we talked about this in the past as we were studying Exodus. He takes His people out of Egypt and then He gives them his, their them his law so that he could take Egypt out of his people. But the problem is these are all external things. Nothing's changing their heart. And so they keep reverting back to their sin and back to their old ways. But he tells them that a day will come when he's going to do something with their heart. He tells them that a day is going to come when the law is not just this external conformity, but this law is written on their hearts. For example, he says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. So he's reminding them, I told them what to do, and they did not listen. Though, he says, I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you see the difference here? God was telling His people that a day would come when He was going to do something internal. He was going to put His law on their hearts. And now they would have a new nature and a new desire to obey the things He had commanded. And apart from that, they would fail miserably. And just, if you understand this, you, you can begin to recognize why religion falls so short for so many. Because so often what happens in religion is we're given a list of rules, a list of commands to follow. It's an external conformity. And so we try to clean ourselves up and we try to behave the right way and we try to do the right things. But sooner or later, our true nature comes out. 
because our heart has not been changed. This is why I've had conversation after conversation with people who will say to me, well, Pastor, I've just been trying to change. I've been reading the Bible over and over again, but I tell you, I, I keep reading it, but my life just doesn't change. I keep reading it and my desires do not change. And I will tell them, well, that's not the way it works. That the Bible is not intended to be some religious mantra that you read over and over again and then it changes you. No, we have to be changed in our heart first so that we might desire to obey the things of God. If our hearts never change, if our natures never change, which is what the gospel does, then our life's not really going to look that much different. And we might be religious for a while, but sooner or later we fall back into our own old ways. There's so many things in the Scripture that tell us about what this, this new creation and new heaven and glory will one day look like. And there's this description in the book of Isaiah that actually speaks more to the, the animal kingdom. So just follow me with this because I think this illustrates the point a little bit. Uh, Isaiah 11 gives us this picture of the new creation. It says, the wolf shall lay down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. If any of you have animal planet, that's probably not what you've observed. You probably don't observe the cow and the bear grazing in a field together. Or a lion and a calf just walking side by side. Now this is a glimpse, this is a picture of the peace in the kingdom, but this is not our present reality, no matter how many times you read that passage. So you can take the book of Isaiah, and you can go up to the Louisville Zoo, and you can go to the lion's display up there and stand outside the the gate of the lion, and you can say, listen lion, I'm going to tell you what God's word says is true of you. There's a day when you're going to lie down with the calf, and you can read that passage over and over and over again to the lion, and then you can say, "All right, I think the lion got it now I'm going to put a cab in there in the cage with it and you come back the next day and what are you going to see you're going to find that lion had steak tartar for dinner the night before because the lion's character has not changed no matter how much you tell the lion what the future is going to look like and that is the same for us friend We can read the Scripture all day long. We can look at what we should be like in Christ. But if our heart is not changed, our uh, behavior will not change. We need a new heart. And that's what the Gospel of Jesus Christ does. It changes our heart. And that's why Jesus as our great high priest is so much greater than this Levitical priesthood. Because what the writer's communicating is, look, in the Levitical priesthood, we, we've got a glimpse, but it pointing us towards a greater reality. We can see where this was incomplete and where this fell short, but we can see where all these things find their fruition in and through Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, the law doesn't change our hearts. The law just shows us how sinful our hearts are. But Jesus is the one who changes our hearts. And because of that, Jesus is the one through whom then we have access to the Father. Which brings us to the third point there in your outline. Through Christ, we are able then to draw near to God. The writer here reminds us in verse 18 that the Levitical priesthood, it served a purpose, but it wasn't sufficient to save us. 
It fell short. It was weak and it was useless in so much as it could not bring us into the presence of God. Again, think about what that system would have looked like. You would have taken that sacrifice. You would have given it to the priest and then your hands are off of it. That that priest then goes through the curtain. That priest then goes into the Holy of Holies. And all you have is the hope that that sacrifice would be sufficient. And we can see that that did not bring you into the presence of God. But through Christ, the writer reminds us, we can draw near to Him. Not through the law, but through faith in Jesus. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, the law serves a purpose, and part of that purpose is to help us to see and we're not as well off as we think we are. And we're not as good as we think we are. We fall short of God's glory. The law shows us our need for a Savior and points us towards Jesus, who is our better hope, about which the writer says, verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so do you see the difference here in the hope we can have? Under the Levitical priesthood, the hope was, I hope the blood of this bull is sufficient to cover my sin. I hope this sacrifice I'm making today will atone for the bad that I've done. And again, that might seem foreign, but, but it's not so different than some of the ways we hope today. I hope that I've done enough good to outweigh my bad. I hope that God will forgive me and let me into heaven. I hope that in some way that, that I've been more good than I've been bad. I, I hope that I've got a chance. But the Scripture says we can have something better than that hope. We can have a better hope through assurance. We can have a better hope through surety that Jesus indeed has paid it all. And that as we trust in Him, we're trusting in the One who we're not just hoping is sufficient for our sin. But we can know is sufficient for our sin. Because He has died once for all. Friends, this is why it's significant that when you come into this church, it's Lord's Day, that there's no depiction of Jesus on that cross. That's purposeful. There's a reason for that. You'll walk into other churches in this community and others and you'll see a depiction of Jesus on the cross. It's very significant that as Protestants, we don't have that depiction because what we are saying, what we are proclaiming is that Jesus' work is finished. That Jesus is not perpetually suffering. That we don't have to hope that He suffers enough to pay for our sin. We can know that it is finished. We can know that it is done. We can know the forgiveness of God through Jesus because He's not on that cross. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father because it is finished. It is significant when we look at that cross that we're not hoping to be forgiven one day. It's significant that when we look at that cross, we see in it the symbol of God's forgiveness because it is on that cross that our Savior died. And it is on that cross that they took His body down. And then they placed His body in a tomb. And three days later, that tomb was empty because He conquered 
sin, and death. And it is finished. And that means that when you get out of bed tomorrow, or you go to bed tonight, and you start thinking about all the things you've done wrong and how messed up you are, it means when you come in here on Sunday morning and you praise God with the same mouth that you go out there and you curse your brother with, that you can put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ in the finished work of Christ and that you can pray to Christ, change my heart because He's given you a new one. It means that you're not just hoping to be forgiven, but that you can have the knowledge that you have been. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's that work that we celebrate each time we come to the Lord's table together. We don't come to this table and take this bread and take this cup hoping that Jesus suffers enough for us. We come to this table and we take this bread and we take this cup as a reminder of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We take this bread and we take this cup as a reminder of what will one day be. That there's a day coming when there's no more sin and no more suffering and no more death and no more disease and no more cancers and no more hospitals and no more hurting the people you love and no more disappointing your kids and no more debt and no more weight of anxiety and worry and no more hopelessness. That there is a day coming where Christ will say boldly and loudly, I am making all things new. And we put our hope and our trust and our faith in that day. Jesus' work on the cross is indeed finished. And the Scripture says that today His work is that of interceding on our behalf that we might stand firm and press on and hold fast and have faith. And so, brother and sister in Christ, Take comfort today in His finished work. And friend, if you aren't in Christ and you don't know Jesus, then I can't tell you this morning to take comfort because there's no comfort to be found. But there is an offer. And the offer is this. God's Word says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can come to a saving knowledge of Christ and understanding that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That no amount of offerings under the Levitical priesthood and no amount of religious observance in today's culture is going to save you. But there is one who went to the cross on your behalf. God demonstrated his love toward you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And if you will confess him as Lord and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... You can be saved. In fact, God says you will be saved if you place your hope and your trust in Him. And so we consider these things as we come to this table together today, this table that celebrates that work that Christ has finished, this table that reminds us of what is to come. And so this is our invitation for our service today. This is how we respond to God's Word today. If you have made that public profession of your faith, we invite you to come to this table together. If you've yet to do that, if you have questions about the gospel, if you, if you feel like you're coming to that understanding but you're just not sure, then I'll be around after the service today. Our other pastors will as well. I can get together with you anytime this week. We'd love to talk to you more about it, what it means to place your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can come to this table the next time we come to it together.